For those of you who don't know me, my name is Siabulela Nana. Siabulela means we are grateful. That's what my parents felt. I don't know if they still feel the same. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, reading from verses 1 through to verses 3, the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, reading the first three verses. It is good to see so many of you here today. We're delighted that we can gather together at the larger numbers than we were. I'm asking you to turn, but I haven't turned. Um, let me go there. They say there's nothing embarrassing like a preacher looking for his passage. It means he doesn't read his Bible. Let's read together. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people of the earth, will be blessed through you. This is the word of the Lord. And may the Lord bless it to us. Last Sunday we began a five-week sermon series called Becoming Emotionally Mature. There are two justifications for this series or the why behind the series. The first is negative And the second is positive. Negatively, we have this series because we all, in many ways, feeling emotionally drained and emotionally exhausted. And this has been caused and fueled by this long and ongoing period of fear, uncertainty, and anxiety. For almost two years, we have been in this period where our vision for the future has been limited to two or three months. Beyond three months, we don't know what will happen. And therefore, we cannot dream that far. And so, the period, therefore, that we've been on, this long and ongoing period, has had a negative impact on us, a negative emotional impact on us. As a result, we feel exhausted emotionally. Now, I want to suggest that it seems to me that it is when we recognize the reality about our condition that we are in a position to be renewed and restored. When we are able to say, this is me, and this is how I feel, and this is what I am going through, you are in a a better position to be renewed and be restored. Jesus puts this beautiful in John's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 37. It says, on the last day of the great festival, Jesus stood up and cried to the crowds who were there, 
And he said, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It seems to me that the condition to receive this thirst-quenching and eternally satisfying water is when you recognize that you are needy. In order for you to be refreshed by this water, you need to recognize that my soul is dry and empty, therefore I need to be filled afresh with this refreshing water with an eternal satisfying impact. That's the first reason why we have this series. We recognize our condition and therefore we cry out to God. Secondly and positively, we have this series because Christian discipleship, that sounds like a big word. All it means is that to follow Jesus. Christian discipleship involves the whole of our human personality. Jesus said we are to love the Lord our God. I like that connection. The Lord our God. God is a creator. The Lord is personal because he's got authority on me. So we are to love this great and personal God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. That is a call to Christian discipleship. In other words, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our being. It is a call to a wholehearted discipleship. Furthermore, in the New Testament, we read these words that our minds is to be, our mind is to be renewed. That's a daily discipline. Our emotions to be purified. You see, because we acknowledge that, yes, we are emotional beings, but not every emotion that we feel that we need to act upon. Not every emotion that I feel should determine how I behave and how I treat other people. No, no, no. Instead, we are to take those emotions and put them through the test. Let's take, for example, the buzzword of our culture, anger. Everyone is angry at everything in our culture today. There is what we call righteous anger. So, so, so I need to ask myself when I find myself in that space, why am I angry? That was the question asked by God to Cain, by the way. Why are you angry, Cain? Why am I angry? Is it a righteous anger? I'm angry because I see injustice. I see power abuse. I see manipulation. Therefore, I am angry. Scripture agrees with you in that kind of anger. But there is an anger that Scripture doesn't agree with. The selfishness, the one that you have because you didn't get what you want or you didn't get your way. Therefore, you are mad. Our emotions are to be purified. Our conscience is to be kept clear. Our will is to be surrendered to God's will. This is a holistic call to discipleship. In other words, 
Christian or biblical worldview doesn't see you as a soul stuck in a body. That's what we used to say long ago. Describe ourselves as a spirit stuck in this mortal body. No, no, no. Scripture sees you as the soul, the spirit, the mind, the body, as a whole being. You see, because what happens to your body affects how you think about yourself, about God, and about other people. That's why it is always wise when somebody says to you, so-and-so seems to be grumpy these days. And the wise thing is to say, I wonder what's going on. Instead of making the conclusion that him is always grumpy. It's probably something is happening in his body which affects the way he thinks about himself. I visited a friend a couple of weeks ago. She thought she was dying. But God had different plans. And we're talking about her impact in the kingdom of God. And she said to me, but Sia, I feel useless now. She is not. But because of what she's going through, she feels that I've got nothing to contribute. So, biblically, your body matters. Your mind matters. Your spirit, your emotions, they matter. These are two thoughts that should help us as we listen to each individual sermon during this series that needs to to be, to be underpinning them. On the one hand, yes, we acknowledge our condition and we're crying out for God to God to fill us. On the other hand, we are seeking to be completely and whole disabled. Today we have a tricky one. We have rather a complex one. Because it says you need to go back in order to go forward. Today is about breaking free from the power of the past over your life. I can hear somebody saying, but Sia, why is it tricky and complex that we must go back in order to go forward? Because we do that almost every day. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation, whether with your friend or with your spouse, and you conversing well, at least in your mind, you seem to be hearing each other, but then he or she keeps quiet while the conversation is going, and you don't notice that he or she's gone quiet. You continue talking, and eventually you do realize that I have been talking alone in this conversation for a while, and your mind immediately goes back to find out did I say something that may have put her off? Did I say something that may have offended and you realize that, no, I haven't. Again, at least to yourself, to your mind, because every one of us is capable to offend, even if we were not aware. And eventually you inquire, did I say something that have offended you? No, I thought you wanted to have this conversation all by yourself, because every time I try to make the point, you speak over me. It seems to me you've made up your mind about what you want to do. I don't even know why you came to me for that matter. So go ahead and do what you want to do, and you can have the conversation all by yourself. 
In order to go forward, you had to go back. But today is much deeper and much complex than that. Because what today says to us all, some of the wounds and scars that we carry emotionally have something to do with what happened to us when we were young, when we were growing up, or something happened in that very close relationship or intimate relationship. And whatever it is that has happened there, it has left, it has damaged my soul and left a scar, in, an emotional scar, which I carry it with me. That's what today seeks to break. Now, the text before us helps us to locate the place some of these scars which we carry may have happened. It seems to suggest that that place is in the context of the family or in the context of home or intimate relationship. Where do we get that from the passage that we read? We get it from the name Abram or Abraham. Because Abraham means father. Or according to our text, it means the father of many nations. So Abraham was a father in the literal sense because he had children. But he was a father in the spiritual sense because he was a man through whom the covenant between God and the Jewish nation originated. So his fatherhood involved us too. We are the sons and daughters of Abraham. Now, Abraham as a father, he is a channel of all God's blessings to his family. We know that. We've read it. But there is something that we haven't read, which is equally the same. He's the channel of all God's blessings to his family, but he is also a channel of all forms of of human brokenness to his family. So, on the surface, the, the Abrahamic narrative sounds great. He's a man of faith. He's a man of great obedience. He leaves everything he knows to, to follow God to a place he doesn't know. But as we begin to scratch deeper, we realize that there are recurring scenes in this Abrahamic narrative, he is also the channel of all human brokenness. We begin to see that the story of Abraham is full of recurring lies. It is full of devastating deceptions, full of stories that are divisive of divisive favoritism, full of sibling rivalries, full of plotting to murder, cheating in marriage and cheating in business. It's a story of recurring spiritual and moral brokenness, which when we trace its original, we realize that Abraham was also the source of all those negatives. Because no longer 
doesn't take us any long time in chapter 12, which we read the first three verses, to see some of these hohos beginning to emerge in the life of Abraham himself. Twice he lies about Sarah, his wife, that she's his sister, which had huge spiritual consequences. That lie become a pattern of the family in Genesis 26. Isaac will represent now the second generation of Abraham's family line, repeats the same lie in the same place Abraham did it in the same with the same king. Later on, these lies that have happened privately, they become a family business, a family affair. They become devastating deceptions. Jacob, Jacob, become extremely rich. And his wealth is based on lies, deception, and stealing. His name was Jacob. You missed it. So that's the story when we scratch deeper on it. What does this mean to us today? That's Abraham. Well, it's got huge implications. And I just want to say one thing which will control everything that we say. That this is a great reminder and a gospel wake-up call to us all. That is to say... It reminds us that only our Heavenly Father, who is utterly perfect. I'm saying, even those of us who, who had excellent fathers, they would not say they were perfect. Only God is perfect. In Christian theology, we've got that big word called incommunicable attributes. In other words, Things that God, only God possess, which he cannot share with us, and they make him uniquely God. So only our heavenly Father, who is utterly perfect. If you hear this morning, you had an excellent father, you will be daring to say he was perfect, because he wasn't. So that's what this reminds us of. Some of us here, have grown up without our fathers. You see, because when we were two or five, they left. Some of us here, yeah, when our fathers heard that our mom were pregnant us, they said, that's not what I came here for. Goodbye. So from conception, some of us were rejected. From conception, somebody said, I want nothing to do with you. No, that's true. If you live in South Africa, that's an everyday story. And don't tell me that doesn't leave a scar. It does. Because this is the person through whom you came to this world. And that person says, I want nothing to do with you. And rejection has a way of showing itself. I often say to people, if the worst thing that you can do to any other human being is to say to them, you are not enough. That's what rejection does. 
It says you're not enough. You need to do to perform more to get my approval and my acceptance. And that is the worst thing that you can do to any human being. Many of us have experienced that before we took our first breath. Eugene Peterson says so beautifully in one of his books, he says, we enter the world, most of us anyway. I like that statement. Cuddled and loved, cared for and coddled. We are so lovable and so loved. But it doesn't take us long. Sometimes it doesn't last past our first change of diapers. Sooner or later, we find ourselves treated like trespassers or rivalries. Some of us here would say, oh yes, I had my dad at home. But even though he was there at home, he was absent in my life. They have been so bound up in their work. And when they come back home, they wanted to switch off. So they were not tied to us emotionally. Moms done the disciplining. They've done whatever nurturing we have. They also done the praying and the Bible teaching. So some of us, in, in, a, in, a, in a way of example, have been told that spirituality in the home is for moms and children. Thank you very much. Don't count me in. That's the link that we get from Abrahamic story to us today. We relate with that story. And the scars that we carried from generation to generation in Abraham's story, we carry them too. Even those of us who would say we had good fathers, no doubt their fathers made their mistakes. And they too carry their scars. But you see, I've got news for you, is that we haven't stopped to inflict new scars to the next generation. Oh yes, we haven't. If we see ourselves in light of the gospel, that only our heavenly father was utterly perfect, even those of us who seek to be the best, we will never be perfect. And every day, therefore, we need God's mercy. Now that takes me to the gospel moment, something that I've called gospel moment. As we have seen Abraham's failure and linked them to our own situation, and we said that is a reminder of that God is the heaven, is the one who's completely free from causing damages to the next generation. We've learned that generational sin is a real thing. Sin has consequences that last for generations. But what does that mean to us? Should we stop trying to be the best that we can be? How are we to understand that in light of the gospel? in light of what Jesus has achieved for us on the cross. In Galatians, or maybe before I say that, my answer to that is we need first of all to recover our confidence in the gospel. We need to recover 
our confidence in what Christ has done for us on the cross. I wonder how much of the gospel, how much of who you are in Christ shapes how you live your everyday life. Because every day you will be confronted with things that wants to remind you of the scars or deepen your scars. But who you are in Christ should help you emerge above those things that seeks to bring you down. In Galatians 3 verses 13, we are told Christ has redeemed us from the curse. You are redeemed. That's your new identity. Yes, you're coming from all these generational, generational brokenness I've just mentioned, but you have been redeemed. Redeemed, rescued, set free. That's you. That's your identity. Recover the confidence in that identity. You will have people reminding you of the scars on the negative side. You need to emerge with confidence in who you are in Christ Jesus. You've been made free. Christ became the curse so that you can receive his blessings. That's what the cross did. He became the curse. J.I. Pecker says, in my place condemned he stood. In my place condemned he stood. So, so, so whatever condemnation that comes your way, it's too late. Oh yes, you will feel it. But you, you need to remember, scrutinize it. Scrutinize that condemnation. Interrogate it. Put it to the test of scripture and see who, ima who image is stronger. It's you, not the, not the condemnation over you. Secondly, we must take comfort to the sovereignty, to the doctrine of the sovereignty. Sovereignty means all-knowing God, all-powerful God, ever-present God. We must take comfort to that. I was sharing my story with a couple. When you know your story, you miss God moments in it. And the wife of these people I was talking to said, wow, Sia, I can see the hand of God in that space, in that part of your life. It was dark. I can see God in this part of your life. And I woke up. And I could see God who was there when nothing seemed hopeful. Psalm 139 tells us that you are not a mistake. Whatever the circumstances of your birth, that you are born, God allowed it. Dallas Willard wrote that famous book called The Divine Conspiracy. In that book, he talks about the fact that while we were far from God, he was working towards us. He was creating space for us. Divine conspiracy. That's you. So one, you recover your confidence in the gospel, what Christ has achieved for you. Two, take comfort on the sovereignty of God. He is all-knowing. He was there when whatever has happened in your life happened. Let me, let me wrap up. My time is against me. While we think about this, 
Joseph in Genesis 50 gives us a beautiful gospel moment. His brothers who sold him, who plotted against him, who did all kinds of horrendous things, they come back in need. He recognized them, they don't recognize him. It's always the case. He says to them, what you did to me was evil. You meant evil. But God meant it for good. He doesn't deny the pain, but he sees the hand of God. So what, happened, what happens or happened to us doesn't define who we are. A Jewish scholar, Jonathan Sachs, says when in his moving poem, he says, Ours is people of faith, not fate. That's us. God is speaking mercy to you. Have you been rejected? Has the world crushed you? Do you carry the scars? Oh, yes, you do. But I want to say to you this morning, God is speaking the words of grace, the words of mercy, the words that seeks to restore you, to let go of those scars. Practically, how are we to do? Just three points. One, we identify the scar. Identify it. It's there. I have a scar here. I know what happened. The scar doesn't hurt me. But I can tell you the story that brought about this scar. It has no power over me, but it's there. Identify it. Own it. At the age of 21, I became aware that I was carrying deep-seated anger towards my dad, who left us when I was seven. He walked out on us. He was the breadwinner. My mom was nursing twins who were under two years. And him doing that costed me so much as the firstborn. I had to start working full time from the age of 16. At the age of 21, I became aware that I was angry at my dad. And it was affecting my progress in faith because I was going forward looking backward. And I'm grateful for the man who's been like a father to me since I was 16, who acknowledged that wound and created a space for me to deal with it. Today I carry no baggage towards my father. I disapprove of what he did, but I honor him as my dad. If I speak about him and cry, it's because I wish I had a relationship with him. Not because I'm carrying anger at him. I can go on and go on. We must own it. I know a family, would, they would not touch alcohol. Not because they think it's sinful to do that as Christians. They know their theology well. But because they know what alcohol did in their family. Alcohol abuse, let me add that what it did to their family for generations. So while they celebrate the grace of God, they take responsibility for their actions. 
that this thing will stop here under the power of God. It shall not carry on. Identify, own it. One of the popular things of our culture today is victim politics and victim mentality. Because if I say they did this to me, the whole world will come on my side without actually understanding the story. But as believers, we've been called to carry the cross, not to, be, not to behave like victims. Ours is the conqueror on the cross. So we own it, but also we invite other people to walk with us in that journey. We come around the table, which is, again, the table for the people of God. It's, I'm always fascinated by how Jesus instituted it. It's a reminder that we belong together, but also we belong to Jesus. As I've shared what I've shared, it's probably reminding you of your own personal scars. But I want to ask you not to deal with that scar alone. Find people within this community. And I want to say, I want to make an invite. If you would like anyone to pray with you, I'll be here at the end of the service. I'll gladly speak to you and pray with you. So on the night Jesus was crucified, we are told that he took the bread, which you see in front of you, he broke it. And, uh, and he took the cup and he poured it. And he said to his disciples, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. This cup represents my blood. That's you today. That body has been broken for you. Jesus became the curse for you. This blood is for you today to wash you clean and affirm you as the child of God. Let's eat and drink together with thanksgiving. Christ has redeemed you and set you free from the law, the curse of the law. In that you don't need to earn the salvation by your works, but by faith. Lord Jesus, indeed, we come, like Nehemiah said, from families that carries an amount of brokenness. And that brokenness has moved and affected us too. But we thank you for what Jesus has done for us. And we take our identity in him. As we go, Lord Jesus, we ask you to remind us afresh of who we are in you. For your name's sake.